You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. People do not yet understand that information is valuable. Big fights all for the control of information. The control of information is the central battle uh, of the economy of the future. Futurist Alvin Toffler. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, to be a successful futurist, you don't need a crystal ball or a stack of tarot cards or some psychic ability. What you do need is the ability to look at current events, current the current environment, and extrapolate what the future may hold from that. And in contemporary times, one of the most successful and influential futurists was Alvin Toffler. His 1970 book, Future Shock, and his 1980 bestseller, The Third Wave, inspired millions of people to look at things and think about things very differently. Toffler accurately forecasts such things as the Internet and personal computers and cloning, among other things. In 1990, he wrote a book called Power Shift, and that's when I had the chance to meet him and talk with him. Now, as you listen to this, try to remember, if you're old enough, where you were what you were doing in 1990, over 30 years ago, and then think about how things are today, and judge for yourself how accurate Alvin Toffler was 30 years ago. So here now, from 1990, Alvin Toffler. We, we don't believe in predictions. We, are not, we, we don't believe anybody knows the future. But you can look at the changes taking place today, whether in uh, the change of power in, uh, in the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe or the Western Europe, the Middle East. You can look for the relationship of that to things closer to home, like why is General Motors, once the top manufacturing company in the world, now uh, possibly facing breakup? Why is Chase Manhattan Bank in trouble? Why have doctors lost the clout they used to have in the community? Why, why is the neighborhood bank, which used to be a pillar of power in every community, now look like it might not be there next week? Why? And that's what this book sets out to answer. There is a relationship between doctors between Japan's rise, between General Motors, between banks, and that hidden relationship is the new ways in which knowledge is being used for power, to upset old power structures and to create new ones. The whole idea, our whole notion of power is going to have to change, isn't it? Yes, because this is a turning point. It's the most important moment in 400 years. 400 years ago, a man named Francis Bacon told us that knowledge is power. Everybody knows that. What's different is that now all the other basic forms of power, whether it's military power or economic power, are themselves based on knowledge so that all those weapons that we're sending over to the Middle East wouldn't be worth anything if they didn't have information embedded in the, in the computer chips inside them or in the machines that built them. Uh, AWACS, uh, Stinger missiles, F-16s, Mirage jets, all military weaponry at a high level is now dependent upon information. And the same thing's happening to the economy. More people are handling information than handling physical goods on assembly lines. So information and knowledge have changed their, knowledge has changed its relationship to violence in society and to wealth in society. And that's a very deep historical change. The industrial era, the smokestack era, that is gone That's forever. yesterday. The smokestack era is yesterday. And what's happening now is the rise of a totally new kind of economy. We outline it in PowerShift and call it the super symbolic economy. And there's a reason for that. 
in ancient times, the only uh, property or, or wealth that meant anything was land. And that's tangible. You could touch it. You could run it through your fingers. Then came the smokestack period, when wealth was maybe a share of stock in Bethlehem Steel. And uh, that was a piece of paper that you put in your safe, uh, but it represented your ownership of a little tiny piece of an assembly line or a factory or a pile of, of steel, raw, uh, raw materials. It represented tangible things. But now, when you buy a share of stock in Apple, in IBM, or Fujitsu, or Siemens, what are you buying? You're buying the symbols inside the heads of their employees, ideas, information, new uh, innovations, and, and uh, so on. Therefore, your piece of paper, your share of stock, is a symbol that represents other symbols. That's why we have a super symbolic economy. And not only that, you don't have to plunk down dollar bills for that or even mm -hmm. write a check for that no, anymore. No, money is gone. Money, when money is now used for trivial reasons, it sounds crazy to say because we all use it every day and we all need it every day, but let's face it, large sums, large transactions no longer involve money. In fact, if you see anybody making a transaction with a lot of money, it looks fishy. It looks like they're laundering, laundering drug money. The the real economic transactions in society are now electronic. In, and what's happened is we've gone from a kind of money, which in ancient times used to be things like salt or copper, things that you could use. If you couldn't exchange it, you could at least use it. You could eat the salt. Then we went to paper money. And that was money, uh, the value of which depended upon what was printed on it. And it depended, therefore, on literacy. It meant that people, in order to use money, people had to know how to read. Now we're, we've gone beyond the age of literacy money or literate money into video money. The money is blinks on a computer screen. They're electronic blips. What do we have to know how to do then to use the money that well, is coming now? We need to understand that, uh, that information is money. Information and money is information. For example, you go to the supermarket, you buy a bag of groceries, you go to the checkout counter. At the checkout counter, the clerk runs those past an optical scanner. Well, and then you pay. What you don't know is you're paying twice for that same bag of groceries. Once with money, and the second time with the information that that store's computer is sucking out of that bag of groceries you just bought. It's telling that store what size, uh, the, how much, you know, you buy a pound or a half a pound, mm -hmm. what brand, what type, what magazine you plucked off the shelf to read. It's telling the store uh, a lot. And if you pay with a credit card, it's telling you more. It's telling you, it's telling that store where you live, what your zip code is, probably something about your wealth, what other kinds of things you buy. And an enormous amount of information is sucked into that store's machine, which the store then turns around and uses, it sells that information to the manufacturer or it uses that information to bargain with the manufacturer and in fact increase its own profits. So, so you as a consumer are in effect making a double payment for what you're buying. And the reason for that is people do not yet understand that information is valuable. There's quite a fight going on over that information that comes every time they slide a bag of potato chips across the scanner. Right, because what's going on is a whole series behind the scenes, backstage, out of the view of most people, there are a whole series of what in PowerShift we call info wars 
going on, for the control of information. The manufacturers and the retailers are battling for who controls that information coming out of the, that valuable information coming out of the scanner. Uh, banks and credit card companies are fighting for who controls all that information pouring into their computers. Um, even the future of television, things like who's going to control the kind of television you watch in the future. High definition television, will it be made uh, to fit American standards, European standards, or Japanese standards? Big fight going on. Standards for computers, standards for telecommunication systems, standards for every kind of product, big fights, all for the control of information. The control of information is the central battle uh, of the economy of the future. With everything so centered on information, you really are called upon to put trust in lots of things, aren't you? You have to trust that the bank, when it says you have X number of dollars, that you really, because you can't go and actually count those dollars. Right. You have to trust that somebody will exchange products or services for a transient blip on a computer screen. That's really magical. It's almost like we have a belief that this will happen, that if the, that if the computer says on off uh, in the right place, that somebody will give you a car. <laughs> and and that, that is a mystical belief. <laughs> but, but in fact, all money systems are based on that, on trust. Only what we trusted in the past were metal, gold, silver, uh, or other things. And we trusted paper. And now we're trusting a blink on a screen. After this short break, Alvin Toffler actually foreshadows deep fakes. There are now two new ways to listen to Now I've Heard Everything. Full episodes are now on YouTube. Just search for Now I've Heard Everything. And if you're on TikTok, watch for the promos we post about new episodes. Tap the link at the bottom of the video to hear the full episode. Now back to my 1990 conversation with Alvin Toffler. You also go into the in, in your book, Power Shift, uh, as to the different kinds of ways that information can be manipulated as to when we receive it, how we receive right. it, how much we receive it. Right. Do you remember a few years ago when uh, one of the news magazines had on its cover the Great Pyramids, and it turned out they had electronically moved a pyramid in the picture to make it more aesthetically pleasing? Right, right. How do you trust what you see oh, if we have the technology it, to do that? We have the technology now to show uh, uh, George Bush throwing a, a cream into Saddam's face, and it, and it would look real. Uh, therefore, uh, media users, the us, all of us who turn on the television set, who listen to radio, who use the new, uh, who live in the new information environment, have to be far more skeptical and far more sophisticated about uh, the media, and far more. Uh, we have to ask ourselves all kinds of questions, like, okay, here's a story coming over the wire. Whose benefit is served by that story? How did it get there? Who wrote the press release? And so on. Here I am uh, doing a promotion for a new book. <laughs> you got a press release from my publisher. That press release tells you what I want you to know, uh, rather than necessarily what you want to know. Now, that goes on, of course. Uh, the pages of the Wall Street Journal and every newspaper are filled with that stuff. And readers and viewers and users of information have to ask themselves every time they read a story, on the front page of a paper or look at uh, a television newscast or other kinds of program have to ask themselves whose power is increased or decreased by the telling of that story. It's, it's, I find it fascinating, though, that the more we get to a high-tech age where we can plug into anything 
any part of the world, anybody. We can do any transaction. We still want the warm fuzzy. We want to be able to touch people. We want sure. to meet people. We want authors to go on tour in person as opposed to watching you on a satellite. Right. I, I could ask you questions on a satellite, mm -hmm. but I'd rather have you sitting here in the sure. studio talking. And the reason for that is that I'm giving you more information by being present than just by watching me on the screen. You get a feel for, the, for a person when you meet them face-to-face -face that the screen does not deliver. Someday, maybe, we won't be able to tell the difference. But the fact is, right now, nonverbal communication, you're seeing how I sit, how, whether I fidget, uh, looking at my eye blinks, <laughs> and you're getting information from all of that. You're telling whether I smile, whether I'm, whether I'm stuffy, mm -hmm. uh, how I dress, all of that. And face-to-face uh, -face contact is still critical to understanding the communications that we get that come across that computer screen. Now, the Cold War is over, so we have no more need for spies, right? Oh, baloney. <laughs> it's, it's boom times for espionage. Uh, it seems to me that the idea that uh, now that the Cold War seems to have wound down somewhat, that we don't need spies is a joke. Spies are going to be with us. There are going to be more spies, but they're probably going to be doing different things. There's going to be more economic espionage. We want to know whether the Japanese or the Europeans are planning to raise or lower currencies or interest rates or this or that, because we want to be able to manipulate their economy or at least defend our own economy. So there's going to be a lot of economic espionage. There's going to be technological espionage. Of course, there already is, but there's going to be far, far more. And a spy is not going to be somebody lurking around uh, with a hat pulled down over his eyes, wearing a trench coat and smoking a cigarette and looking suspicious. It's going to be the next-door neighbor who's maybe an engineer working at a high-tech place but is picking up a few bucks on the side by passing secrets to another country. But it's not just that kind of espionage. Companies are increasingly engaging in intercompany espionage. When Marriott wanted to create a chain of, uh, of uh, low-cost hotels, they sent out their own spies to go and live in other people's hotels, and they actually went through the... <laughs> They, they, uh, one guy would go into one room and make uh, simulate the noises of lovemaking, and then the guy in the other room would see whether they could hear it, you know, because they wanted to know how thick the walls were between the the rooms, so what they so that they could design their own hotels to make them silent. Uh, that kind of business espionage is on the rise. There is even an association of what are called uh, competitive intelligence operatives. So espionage, and, and the key behind all of this is very simple: information is valuable. Information now carries a tremendous in, uh, monetary, political, and, and other kinds of value that it didn't have before. Uh, and consequently, the race to get information, the ways of manipulating it, the tactics with which uh, bureaucrats use information and politicians use information. We're in Washington, and this town is the headquarters of what we call in PowerShift uh, infotactics, uh, the, the carefully planted leak. Uh, the secret. Spin uh, control. Spin control. <laughs> back channels. Pass the information around the official channels. Or uh, what we call in the book the double channel ploy. You send one message through one channel and a contradictory message through another channel, and you confuse the hell out of your adversary. <laughs> <laughs> this town is full of that. And what we try to do in Info, in, uh, info Tactics, the chapter in Power Shift, was to lay out all of those tricks and games that are being used. And indeed, the future games that are going to be used with computers. Uh, which make it even more sophisticated and subtle. You've got, to, you've got to ask about every bit of information you get, whose power is enhanced and whose power is reduced by the existence of that information. I've only got a moment or so left, but I wanted to ask you, I've had 
a number of journalists in this very studio talk about Eastern Europe, and one of the things they said that led to the the, the uh, breakup of the Soviet control was exactly what you talked about in here: the fax machine, mm-hmm. the satellite right. dish, the the uh, portable, the cellular phones, mm-hmm. all the technology that made government control over the media and over communication no longer possible. Right? Will we ever again see an oppressed state the way we've seen Eastern Europe for the past forty years? Well, I think uh, if uh, so long as a, as a Saddam Hussein or uh, or some other dictator can keep uh, the media out internally they can hang on as best they can to power. However, they can't hang on because in order for that economy to function, they've got to be linked into the world system. And that means satellites, and that means information, and that means fax machines and electronics and so on. And therefore, countries can no longer seal off their people from what's going on in the outside world. And the real reason for the collapse of communism is not just information coming through the new media, that was a major factor, but also the economic significance of information. And this has been overlooked. The, the real change that happened was from 19, in 1956, Nikola, uh, Nikolai Khrushchev said, we're going to bury you. We're going to outstrip you economically. The fact is, that was the first year when the United States, in the United States, information and service workers outnumbered factory workers and blue-collar workers. And we have been on an information economy rise ever since then. And that is the difference. While we were proliferating copying machines, PCs, millions of PCs in people's homes and businesses and so on, the Soviets were locking up typewriters. They, they were, they were, we were, we were spreading cable television. They were controlling the limited one or two channels that they made available. We were a pro-knowledge and a pro-information economy. Theirs was an anti-knowledge, anti-information economy. They collapse. We win. Alvin Toffler died in 2016. He was 87. And you can get a copy of Power Shift by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. Now, we may earn an Amazon Associate commission from your purchase. Now, if you visit heardeverything.com, that's where you'll also find my 1987 interview, 87, with the then CEO of Apple Computer, John Scully. Listen to what he says about the future of computing. Someday we are going to see personal computers that may look nothing like the ones we have today. They may be small enough to wear on your wrist, to be sewn into the fabric of your clothes, or even worn in your spectacles. We'll have an infrastructure of information over telecommunications lines. And you can also hear my 1990 interview with another visionary, the founder of USA Today, Al Newharth. Well, I think it's essential for you to fail uh, if you're going to become a risk taker and a bigger success later on. Of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms, including YouTube. Full episodes. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, as we preview the start of this year's NFL season, we're going to rewind all the way back to 1988 in my interview with the guy they called Dirty, former NFL offensive guard Conrad Dobler. Coaches would say that this guy Dobler is kind of dirty. You've got to watch out for him. And by a coach telling his players that, he was already playing into my hands. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. <laughs>